Thank you guys, and I actually requested that song this morning because it really has a ton to do with what we're talking about this morning. We've been in the middle of this sermon series called Unknown Gods, and it's a reference to Acts chapter 17. Thanks, Elisha. Good Old Testament name there. But uh, it's, a me- it's a reference to Acts chapter 17 where Paul is uh, in the midst of the Areopagus talking to all the philosophers of the day. They're in the city of Athens, and uh, he's in town waiting for... Timothy and Silas to join him, but uh, in this conversation he begins to have with these people, he notices a statue there to an unknown God. The reason he references this statue is because in that little area of the Arapagus, the Greeks had all these statues of all these gods that they worshipped, you know, and of course many of you are familiar with Greek mythology and Zeus and Apollo and all these things, and so they would have a God for every such thing as like the sun, the moon, war, love, all this stuff, right? So then they have one little statue over here called a statue to the unknown God just in case they miss something. (laughs) And so Paul references the statue and he says, hey, let me tell you about the unknown God that you made this statue for. Let me tell you, he actually has a face and he has a name and he's true and he changed my life. And Paul begins to give his testimony and begins to explain to the Greek people uh, the reason for the hope that was in his heart. Well, so we built this sermon series around that, that uh, idea of unknown gods, and we've been for the last several weeks talking about gods in our lives that are probably more like idols than gods per se. They're not really necessarily things that we would uh, go to a church service and worship, but rather they're things in our lives that we've just sort of idolized, and we don't even realize it until we look back how much of this stuff is prevalent in our own lives. Things like materialism, things like consumerism, things like status. And today, we're going to talk about another one of those unknown gods that um, is a difficult topic. It's controversial. It's, uh, it's something I've been wrestling with now for weeks on end. Sometimes I wish Jonathan wouldn't tell me too far in advance what I'm preaching on because I obsess over it for weeks at a time, you know. Um, But uh, this was one that I actually requested and thought it would be relatively easily until I got into it. And and I've just discovered that, that there are volumes and volumes of material written on both sides about this. Today, we're going to talk about relativism relativism, another unknown God that is very prevalent. It's incredibly invasive, it's incredibly persuasive, and it's incredibly pervasive in our society today. And I thought, well, now how can I explain this to you? And because we're in the middle of uh, World Series week, Tampa Bay Devil Rays are playing the, uh, the Los Angeles Dodgers, I just thought, well, maybe, maybe this is a good way to start. By the way, last night's game was amazing. I fell asleep, and I missed all the, the cool action. Woke up this morning to find out that the Devil Rays won uh, an incredibly close game. They won 8-7, to seven, so now the series is tied 2-2. Two to two. Well, let's go a little further. Let's just imagine it's game 7, okay? Now, this is all hypothetical, but let's just imagine it's game 7. It's in the ninth inning, bottom of the night, two outs. The series is tied, obviously, three games to three. And uh, we'll make up a name so we don't, uh, so, so nobody thinks I'm just, uh, you know, uh, pulling some name out of one of the players' uh, rosters. I'll, I'll just make up. Now, let's just say the guy's name is Ed Johnson. Ed Johnson's up to bat, and he's batting for the Dodgers. And he gets up to bat, and he hits a single. And, of course, the game is tied. It's about the ninth, and everybody's freaking out. But rather than running to first base, Johnson just decides he's going to run to third base. 
Well, naturally, what happens is, is that uh, the umpire, the, the, the fielder is going to catch the ball. He's going to throw it to first base. The umpire is going to call him out. But Johnson runs to third base, and instead of just walking back to the dugout because he's out, he just sort of hangs out there for a little while. And so the manager comes out, and he has this long conversation with Johnson about how the fact that they, they threw him out, so you're out. But the conversation goes on for a while. So the umpire from first base goes all the way over to third base, and he's like, what's the deal, man? You were called out. And the manager pulls the umpire to the side, and he says, hey, uh, listen, uh, we need to talk about something. He said, what? He said, uh, Johnson, uh, he doesn't think he's out. Well, wait a minute. He, he ran to the wrong base. Yeah, but uh, Johnson decided he doesn't really like first base. In fact, he, he, he told me he's offended that you would expect him to run to first base every time. It, it, you see, he, he's left-handed, and therefore he can't really help the fact that he really just naturally wants to run to third base. And so because of his natural desire to do so, uh, I've been talking to him a little bit, and we think you should let him. Well, the umpire's going to say, are you kidding me? The rules of baseball clearly state you've got to run to first base. You have to run the bases in order. So the rule of baseball is that you can't run to third base first. You have to run to first base first. So he's out. And, of course, all the fans will be screaming, he's out. Get him out of there. He's got to quit. Well, they don't, they don't have fans right now, but that's what would be happening, right? And after the game... Johnson begins to make an impassioned plea. And in fact, he, he's sitting there telling all the media with tears in his eyes that he, he really, really wants to just be able to run to third base. And so he's just decided he's going to work the rest of his life to get that rule changed. And, you know, at first everybody sort of laughs, but then a few compassionate fans begin to agree with him. In fact, they, they don't just agree with him. They begin a campaign that says that baseball should probably be changed. You should be able to run to any base you want after you get a hit. And then we begin to question, well, what is a hit, actually? What really is the meaning of is? And some really important people high up in the baseball world began to take this matter really seriously. And they begin to say things like, well, you know, we've been thinking and we think running to first base has been part of a social construct that needs to be dismantled. It offends us that you would just assume everyone should run to first base. That's... That's both intolerant and arrogant to just assume everyone has to run to first base before they run to second base. I mean, how judgmental and biased can you be? And do you really have to go to home base to get a point? Why can't you get a point if you go to second base? And so on and so forth it goes until one day we look up, just one generation later, and we realize that baseball is no longer America's pastime. Instead, baseball is just past its time. <laughs> now, you may say that is absolutely just silly. And I would say to you, that is a picture of the ethics and the philosophy of our society and our culture today. The basic question of ethics is simply this. Who makes the rules? What are the rules? And do we have to follow the rules? Well, for Christians, the answer is obvious, right? I mean, God makes the rules, and yes, we must follow them, but for the majority of the world, the answer is more like this. Who makes the rules? Well, you can make your own. What are the rules? Well, whatever you think they should be. Do we have to follow the rules? 
only if it's right for you. So it's our truth or your truth that matters, not necessarily God's truth that matters. Our truth, we make the rules. God's truth, he makes the rules. So the issue of questioning and challenging any and all values is what we would call moral relativism. And by the way, our nation is drowning in it. So what's up? What is relativism? Well, I've worked a long time on this little definition. You can find tons of them. But let me just give you my own definition of moral relativism. It is the belief that moral absolutes do not exist, but rather we are free to determine what is morally right or wrong based on our upbringing, our social status, our natural desires, our culture around us, and I might add a few more, our feelings and our personal history. So what seems right to me may not be right to you, and that's okay. What's true for you may not be true for me, and that's okay. See, we become our own standard of measurement. We create our own set of values and principles. But the problem with that is that there's no basis for, one, anyone, for where anyone can find an objective truth, and there is no person morally pure enough in the world who can provide for us a pure and perfect system of values and principles. So with this philosophy of life, we're left to figure this out for ourselves with, of course, a few basic and important rules. The absolute rule in, um, in moral relativism is that there's no absolutes. Well, that in itself is a contradictory, a contradictory term for themselves, isn't it? But, so if there's no moral absolutes, then you can't have an absolute rule of any kind. But relativists do have an absolute. They do have a moral absolute, and this is their absolute, that freedom is essential. Everyone is free to think and do whatever you want. All right, now they're contradicting themselves with that statement, but that's the truth. That's their moral absolute, that everyone is freedom. And by the way, moral, abs- I mean, moral relativists only believe that there's one sin, and that sin is the sin of intolerance. Now you've heard that term a lot, right? But have you ever noticed how intolerant the tolerant really are? The so-called tolerant are incredibly intolerant if you disagree with them in any way. And I personally find the intolerance of the tolerant incredibly intolerable. But anyway, do you see how this philosophy can lead to a severe downward spiral in our society? Listen to what Peter Kreft said. No culture in history has ever embraced moral relativism and survived. Our own culture, therefore, will either, one of three things, be the first to disprove history's clearest lesson, or we will persist in its relativism and die, or we will repent of our relativism and live. There's no other option. So it begins this never-ending cycle of redefining morality where we eventually end up like the children of Israel in Judges chapter 21, verse 25, where the Bible says, in those days there was no king in Israel, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So what are we supposed to do with this? Well, relativism is alive and well in our culture, right? It's in media, it's in journalism, it's in education, it's in entertainment, it's in government, it's everywhere, even in this very room. Do you, do you, I just can't believe it, but this is true. Do you know that Barna's latest statistics have well over 70% of professing born-again Christians who would say there are no moral absolutes, over 70%. That's seven in every 10 people in this room who would say there are no such things as moral absolutes. Hmm. 
So to the church, I want to give you three points, real simple. And my goal today is really just to define relativism for what it is, expose it to all of us, and then just talk to you a little bit about how we can combat this thing and refute it and recognize it and have conversations with people so that you realize and that you're standing on firm ground where you're coming from so that you can, you can actually lead people to a better understanding of truth and a real understanding of freedom. That's the goal of today's message because I'm telling you, we could talk for days about this subject. There's just no way to cover it in 28 minutes. Thankfully, they gave me three hours, so we'll be done by noon, okay? Just kidding. So first thing I've got for you is number one, wake up. It is the job of the church to wake up. That's exactly what Scott was talking about earlier with that reference out of 2 Timothy 4. Paul was telling Timothy, wake up, be aware. And again to Colossians in chapter 2 verse 8, he says this, beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit. According to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. So how do we recognize relativism so that we can talk to our neighbors and our loved ones about this stuff? Well, like I said, it's, it's all over. It's so, it's so invasive in, in every part of our society. And, and by the way, it's nothing new. We see in Acts chapter 17 where Paul encounters various philosophers in Greek, many of which were rooted in this idea of relativism. And throughout history, the rise of communism and Marxism and atheism and socialism, the Holocaust, slavery, racism, all of that is rooted in a relativistic mindset and philosophy. Even hot issues of the day like abortion and euthanasia, gender identity, sexual orientation issues, all of this is rooted in relativism. So as a Christian, you might say, well, that's not right. You can't do that. God makes the rules. Oh, but what if you were taught since childhood that there is no God, that the Bible is not to be trusted, or that Jesus is just a good man? He's certainly not the Savior of the world. Well, if you were raised this way, and millions upon millions of people are, in fact, the majority of the world is, then where would you find your system of values? Upon what philosophy would you base your basic principles to live by. I mean, my guess is you'd probably have to ascribe to the cultural or the moral relativism and the pressure of our day, right? Because where else would you find community? Where else would you know to look for truth? How would you be able to define truth if you were raised to believe there is no such thing as God? There is no Bible with authority. And so when you begin to realize that the majority of our nation and our world is like that now? Because there was a day when it wasn't, you know. Even 50, 60 years ago, even people who didn't believe in God still ascribed to and were okay with the Judeo-Christian ethic system in our nation. But that doesn't exist anymore, folks. That's why I'm telling you, you gotta wake up. You can't just come to church and exist that the, and, and, and just think that the rest of the world doesn't exist. All you got to do is watch the news for four minutes. You'll see relativism all over the place. But rather than being angry with the unbeliever, maybe we should seek to understand them so that we can better communicate with them. Because one thing is certain, we can't ignore this issue. It's not going away. 
And as I said, it's nothing new. Philosophers down through the ages have discussed and reasoned with each other these things for thousands of years, from Plato to Socrates to Aristotle to Darwin to Freud to Friedrich Nietzsche. All of them had their own take on the origins of life and how we create our own systems of values, but all of their philosophies are born out of a basic idea that is up to mankind to figure this out. One of the best examples is Nietzsche. Lived 1844 to 1900. He's credited as being the father of, of nihilism. Now, nihilism is the belief that everything ultimately is meaningless. Nihilism ascribes to the thought that there's no such thing as ethical or moral values, and even truth and knowledge are, are non-existent. So rather than just asking the question, if a tree falls in the forest uh, and nobody's there, does it make a sound? No, we go way beyond that with, with Nietzsche. In fact, he would say, is there even a tree at all? Right? And it was this kind of reasoning and this kind of mindset that led him to believe that any societal systems of codes, like a police force, for instance, or anything that drives ethics in our society, like a church or a belief in God, all of that becomes a nuisance and a killjoy to our pursuit of the happiness our little hearts desire. Now, this was in the 1800s. But it's this kind of reasoning that ultimately declared Nietzsche to, to make his famous statement, God is dead. And that statement made it real easy then to declare ourselves in charge. Now, this was just one man's philosophy, but it's had a profound impact on our world today. And, and this is just part of what's given way to this relativistic mindset of our culture. And so it's led to new laws being passed in order to accommodate certain lifestyles or habits. Even conflicting laws between states because we're divided as a result of our upbringing and culture on where we stand on certain issues. And so it's no longer what we're about or who we actually are. It's really more about what you feel like you are. And there's no end to that, is there? I mean, if I wake up one morning and I feel like a monkey, does that make me now a monkey man? Well, that brings up another relativistic philosophy called Darwinism that actually says we were evolved from monkeys. Now, the logic doesn't follow, but to a relativist, it makes perfect sense. Once I was a tadpole when I began to begin. Then I was a frog with my tail tucked in. Then I was a monkey swinging from a tree, and now I'm a man with a PhD. Okay? See, the problem with relativism is that it ultimately will destroy our nation and our world. Listen close. We cannot redefine our reality just to suit our personal agenda. We cannot create our own set of morals based off of our personal preferences. There's just no end to that slippery slope. What happens is that we eventually obscure what is evil and even begin to accept it as good. Listen to what Dwight Longenegger said. First we overlook evil, then we permit evil, then we legalize evil, then we promote evil, then we celebrate evil, and then we persecute those who still call it evil. That's exactly what we're seeing in our culture right now. Isaiah 5, verses 20 through 21. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and prudent in their own sight. Oh, folks, it's time for the church to wake up and realize that relativism is here and it is taking 
over. Now, I have a second point for you that I'm just going to skip over because I don't have time to share it. But the second point was dress up. So wise up, dress up. And with that point, I'm just encouraging you to put on the belt of truth, all right? You'll find that in Ephesians chapter 6. But we're going to skip over that and go on to point number three. Wise up. Wake up, dress up, wise up. Proverbs 14, verse 12. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. See, a relativist doesn't necessarily have to be right in everyone's eyes. They just have to be right in their own eyes. As long as their pathway to truth seems right to them and it doesn't infringe on your pathway to truth, then everything's okay. Oprah Winfrey summed this mindset up for millions of people watching live on television when she made this statement during her speech at the 75th Golden Globe Awards. Here's what she said. What I know for sure is that speaking your truth is the most powerful tool we have. But as believers, we don't believe in such statements because we don't believe in a truth. We believe in the truth. And I like what Ben Shapiro said in response to Oprah. He said, there's no such thing as your truth. There's only the truth and your opinion. See, the Oxford Dictionaries, though, and, and, and listen, this, this mindset is prevalent all over the world. The Oxford Dictionary, word of the year in 2016, you know what it was? Post-truth. Word of the year. Listen to the definition of post-truth. Relating to or denoting circumstances in which object, objective facts are less influential in shaping public opinion than appeals to the emotion and personal beliefs. Now, that's the definition of post-truth, and I would say then we are living in a post-truth era where our emotions and our personal beliefs are way more important, way more powerful, way more influential, and way more true than objective facts. Hmm. Now, that's classic relativism right there. We love the truth when it enlightens us, Augustine said. We hate the truth when it convicts us. So even at the risk of sounding intolerant, we have to have the courage to present to our friends and relatives and coworkers an alternative based on an absolute truth. We have to challenge them to closely examine the foundations of both worldviews, one with God and one without God. So two things about that. We have to wise up, and by that I mean this, we gotta know what we believe. We must know what we believe. Matthew chapter 10, verse 16. Behold, I send you out a sheep in the midst of wolves. Therefore, be wise as serpent and harmless as doves. We got to be smart and gentle at the same time. We have to earn the right to be heard with kindness, gentleness, and genuine love for others. We have to engage in what Francis Schaeffer said, uh, pre-evangelism, where we seek first to understand their worldview and then gently and lovingly present the Christian worldview. And this is through a casual conversation. And then we can help see that, that even as imperfect human beings, we're unfit to be the ultimate judges of ourselves on what is right and wrong. So we need a higher authority. It can't just be another person's subjective opinion, right? Certain truths must be objective and absolute or else we spiral into chaos and confusion and, and certain rule. And you can find these absolute truths right here in the word of God. 
But more than that, God has given us a conscience. And so if you're talking to somebody who doesn't even believe in the word of God, then start here. The fact that we actually have a conscience as a human being. Now, relativism is as old as mankind. And it started way back in Genesis chapter 3, when the serpent convinced Eve that her and Adam could be like God and have the knowledge of good and evil if they would just eat from the tree of knowledge. Now, was Satan lying to them when he told them that? Actually, no, he was not lying to them. That's exactly what happened. But he convinced them to be disobedient. And so their sin was disobedient because God told them, don't eat from that tree. Well, we all know what happened next. They ate from the tree. And in doing so, at that very moment, they suddenly have a conscience. They realize they're naked. They suddenly have this realization that they've done something wrong. And so they sin because of their disobedience. Therefore, they would now die as a result of their sin. But also what happened is that the Bible says their eyes were opened. And now they're aware of good and evil in the world. And a conscience was born into mankind at that very moment. So we all have this instinct within us to know what is basically right and wrong. In fact, Paul talks about this at great length in Romans chapter one and two. I would encourage you, go home, study those two chapters. Paul tells us we're without excuse because we have a conscience. We all have a conscience, so it doesn't matter where you go in the world, whether you're in the, you know, the, the, the bushes of Africa or you're in the, the, the frozen tundra of Siberia or you're right here in your own neighborhood in Lynchburg, Virginia. Basically, everybody has a simple conscience about what is right and wrong. So if I go to anybody in the world and I lie to them, they're not gonna tell me thanks. Go to anybody in the world and steal from them, they're not gonna give you a hug for that. Go to anybody in the world and cheat on them and they will not congratulate you. Go to anybody in the world and torture their child and murder their loved one, they're not gonna tell you thanks. Why? Because inside of us, we all have this, no matter where culture, no matter what society, we all have this conscience within us that certain things are inherently wrong. God put that in all of us. And that conscience should point us toward the realization that perhaps a higher power does exist and he's gifted us with these convictions. So if we all have a conscience about basic rights and wrongs, how can some people justify such incredible cruelty as things like genocide or or mass murder? Well, it's because with a relativistic mindset, we get to make the rules and we get to play God. I mean, even Hitler, for crying out loud, was convinced he was doing the world good by trying to rid the world of the Jewish race. He was convinced of it. The radical Islamic terrorists that flew planes into the World Trade Center believed they were doing good. And even in the abortion argument, you will find that pro-abortionists will agree with pro-lifers that it's wrong to kill an innocent baby. And so, the easy way around that is just to simply change the terminology and convince us all that it's not actually a baby until it's born. Up until that moment, it's just a fetus. You see, with a relativistic mindset, you can justify anything you want to and make it okay because you simply want to do it. Even in science, points against it. Even if the results and the, and the, and the truth behind it all points against it, it's okay. You can make an excuse for it. Relativism is the ultimate selfish mindset. And it's prevalent in all of our society, like I've said. So we got to wise up. We got to know what we believe. And you know what else? We got to clarify what we believe. We gotta know our Bible. 
You know, when Paul was talking, we had about know our Bible and our culture, by the way. And Paul was talking to the, to the Greeks. You know what? It's funny because you, you read what he did there, and he actually starts with, the, with exactly where they are. He understood their culture. He knew about their gods. He knew about their goddesses. He knew about uh, all of their, their literature. In fact, he even quotes one of their poems in witnessing to them about the truth of the gospel. And he did this because he wanted to enlighten them to the fact that there is a God that they can truly know. And by the way, these are great dinner discussions with your family or your Christian friends. I would encourage you to go home and talk about this stuff. It will help you flesh out how you explain your faith in Christ to others, right? So 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15 says, in this, says this, but in your hearts revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. So wake up, dress up, put on that belt of truth, wise up. Let me give you one more, rise up. Now while Paul waited for them in Athens, verse 16 of chapter 17 in the book of Acts, he was waiting for Timothy and Silas and his spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the, spirit, that the city was given over to idols. He was provoked because he had a desire to reach these people for Christ. But notice what he did in verse 17. He reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the Gentile worshipers and in the marketplace daily with those who happened to be there. He reasoned with them. He didn't argue, didn't fight, didn't post things about them, didn't yell, didn't scream. He just reasoned with them face to face about their beliefs and about the truth of the gospel, right? And he did it on their turf. He did it with the Jews in their synagogues. He did it with the Gentiles in their places of worship. And he did it in the marketplace and the Bible says he did it daily. See, witnessing should be an as-you-go lifestyle, always open and ready for a conversation with somebody who might be hurting or in need or simply curious about the hope in your heart. And what are we going to talk to them about? Well, we're going to talk to them about two things, truth and freedom. So we've got to rise up, church, and point people to the truth, not a truth, the truth and point them to freedom. See, our job is not only to build up the church, but also to build up a society to the glory of God. By the way, that's why Liberty University exists. We're not just raising up preachers and singers to go into churches and platforms. Listen, we're raising up doctors and nurses and business people and, and engineers and athletes and actors and actresses and, and musicians to go into a secular world that lives a relativistic life style and point them to the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And let me, let me tell you, Liberty University is, is more important now than it's ever been in our culture. So we ought to thank God for that place. And we ought to thank God that he gave Dr. Farwell a vision for that place. Because we're using the, the truth that we're learning at Liberty to point the world to the truth of the gospel. See, truth is that which is factual, actual, and real. And when we encounter something that is true, then we know we can trust it. Truth develops trust. Trust is built off of truth. And that's why you can, you can one of the primary reasons anyway, you can totally rely on Jesus. He's exactly who he said he is. You can trust him. He is factual, actual, and real. So if your soul is thirsty, he's the living water. If you're hungry, he's the bread of life. If you're seeking, he's the son of God and the son of man. If you're wandering, he's the good shepherd. If you're empty, he's the true vine. If you're in darkness, he's the light of the world. If you're on shaky ground, he's the chief cornerstone. If you need forgiveness, he's the grace giver. 
If you've been betrayed, he's the promise keeper. And on and on and on and on it goes. And if you're lost, he's the way. If you're dying, he's the life. If you're fearful, he is peace. And if you are untrusting, let me tell you, he is the truth. He declared it himself. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So let the truth speak for himself. John 8, 31, then Jesus said to the Jews who believed him, if you abide in my word and you're my disciples, indeed, you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. So we got to point him to the truth. Also got to point them to freedom. To the relevance, the only moral absolute, like I said before, is freedom. The only sin is intolerance. But real freedom comes at a cost. Freedom is never free. Let me give you one little example. I'm free to eat whatever I want. So are you. And I want to eat whatever I want. You know what I want for lunch today? A big old chocolate cake. That's it. No green beans, no matter, just cake. But I can't have my cake and eat it too. Because if I do that over and over again, meal after meal, guess what? I'm going to be obese. I already am, but I'll even be bigger, bigger than I am now. And what happens is, is if I continue to use the freedom I have to eat whatever I want, it will diminish and take away the freedom I want later on in life to be able to play with my grandkids or to play golf or to play racquetball or to do anything else. Because you see, by taking advantage of this freedom, I've now robbed myself of a much greater freedom, the ability to live a longer and healthier and happier life. See, I have to constrain one freedom in order to enjoy the other freedom which is far greater. And we do this in all areas of life. We have to do this, like with our money, with business practice, whatever, right? And how about the area of sin? Are you free to do what you want? Sure. I mean, you can run to third base every time if you choose, but you'll be called out every time because the rules of baseball will not allow you to run to third base first without a consequence. The consequence is that you'll be called out. In life, you can sin all you want, but the natural law of sin's result is disappointment, emptiness, and death. Sin always ends up making a travesty of our lives. See, God is dead, said Nietzsche. But in the end, Nietzsche is dead, said God. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So the choice is yours. You can do it your way, but I would suggest you at least try it God's way. And he's proven over and over again in the lives of millions of people, including mine, that this is truly the true way to live. And if you have the truth in Jesus, then you've experienced real freedom. Can I give you one more? My friend Mark Horstermeyer is over there and he's taught me some great stuff about life, but he also taught me about two, two laws. You see, there's this law of gravity. Everybody understands the law of gravity. If you don't understand the law of gravity, let me demonstrate it for you right now. I got a three-inch vertical, and when I jump up, I come right back down. That's the law of gravity, because there's a gravitational pull on the planet Earth that keeps everything here. So when you throw something up, it comes right back down. That's the law of gravity. But there's another law called the law of thrusts. And the law of thrusts says this. 
if something is able to thrust itself high enough above the, the ground and fast enough and strong enough, then it can overcome or overtake this other law of gravity. For instance, a jet airplane. When you get an airplane and it takes off and you're soaring through the air, as long as you have fuel, there's power enough in those jet engines to overcome the law of gravity. And you are defying the law of gravity because of another law, the law of thrusts. Now listen to Romans chapter eight, verse two. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. When I'm in that jet airplane, the law of thrusts is making me free from the law of gravity. When you are in Christ Jesus, the law of his grace has made you free from the law of sin and death. So just like a plane uses the law of thrust to overcome and make me free from the law of gravity, so the law of the spirit of life in Christ, Jesus overcomes the consequences of sin and death. So when you place your life and your trust into the hands of Jesus, when you allow him to constrain your sinful nature with his arms of love, you will discover a greater freedom than you ever dreamed possible. This is freedom for the soul. You see, truth does have a name. His name is Jesus. Freedom does have a name. His name is Jesus. You want the truth? It's in Christ alone. You want freedom? Freedom is in Christ alone. Romans 8, 36. Therefore, if the Son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. Now, there's people in this room right now, and you're not free. It's because you've never trusted Jesus. There's people watching online right now. You're trapped in sin, you need to be set free. The only one who can set you free is Jesus. Why don't you bow your heads right where you're at right now, and why don't you just say this prayer to the Lord Jesus. Lord Jesus, set me free from my sin. Cleanse me with your grace. Forgive me of my sins and my complacency and my, my life, and set me free with your grace and with your love. Oh, folks, if you said something like that to the Lord Jesus, you know what? He'd be more than thrilled to just come into your life and save you. And maybe you're in this room and you just prayed a simple prayer to the Lord like that. Well, then come, come to the altar. Take some of these pastors by the hand and simply say, you know what? The Lord has set me free this morning. I want to be set free. Please show me the way to Christ. They'd be more than happy to do so. Send us a letter. Send us an email. Pastor at uh, thomasroad.org. Whatever you need to do, just, just reach out to us so that we can help you. Now, I know this is a controversial subject, and I know that it's hard to talk about some of the things, but you know what? I totally truly 100% believe in the power and the authority of God's Word. I also believe that the Holy Spirit can speak into the lives of every one of us and use us to reach this community for Him, but we got to start the conversation. But the way I thought we might close the day is just to celebrate the freedom that we have, you know? I mean, if, you, if you've been set free by Jesus, then I think the most natural response for all of us is to worship Him and thank Him for that. Don't you agree? So maybe the best way to close our service today is just to thank the Lord for the freedom that He's given us. So come on, I want you to stand together. And those of you watching online, maybe you're in your living room and this feels a little awkward, but I want you to sing along with us because if you're a Christian, if you're a believer, I think it's high time that we wake up, that we wise up, that we rise up as the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, stand boldly on what we believe, proclaim that freedom, proclaim that life that we have to a community that is really, really lost and hopeless. So come on, I want to hear you you sing it. Ready?
displayed on a criminal's cross. Darkness rejoiced as though heaven had lost. All right, church, come on. But then Jesus rose with our freedom in thank you for joining with us together today as we see what it is that God has done for us all. And today, if you've made a decision for Christ, or if you would like to talk further about what it is that God has done for you in the giving of His Son, Jesus, I would encourage you to email me at the address that is on the screen, pastor at trbc.org. We would love to connect with you to help you begin a brand new journey with Christ. If you would like to help contribute to our ministry as we take this message of the gospel around the world, go to the link on the screen today and help us help others with an amazing message of God's love.